Lord Jesus, you promise that your strength will be made perfect in our weakness. Lord, I am weak, and I know that I can't bring your message unless you fill me with your spirit. Make me emptied of self, Lord, and help me to speak a message that will reach every single heart of every single person here, that they may come away blessed and understanding the gospel better. Thank you, Lord, so much. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Chasing the Night in Tarnished Tinfoil. Why, happily ever after will never be enough. Um, when I was asked to come and speak here, I realized right away this was one of the topics I wanted to talk about because it's something that I just see is permeating in our culture, in our society, and it's, it's such a problem that people don't even see it as a problem. Um, I thought I'd start out by showing you a picture of my youngest son. Do we need to turn out the lights in here? If we turn out the lights, you can probably see this better. This is my son, Skylar. He is three years old. And as you can tell from the picture, he has a lot of mischief in him. Skylar likes to wake up early in the morning before everybody else and come padding into our room. Mommy. So he came in the other morning, about 6 o'clock in the morning, and my husband was still asleep. And so I jumped out of bed right away, and I was hoping maybe he'll go back to sleep, you know. So I took him back to his bedroom, and I said, okay, Mommy will just lie down with you. So I laid down in his bed with him and played with his little hair and tickled his little arm. And he looked up at me in adoration. He said, Mommy, someday when I grow up, I will marry you. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it to him yet. <laughs> I've tried a few times, but you know, it's so sweet. He's my last one, so I'll just let him believe he's going to marry me as long as he wants. <laughs> but you know, it's funny. My kids, even at their young ages, when my daughter was, was it three? She was about three. When we went to, Stephanie Yeager isn't here, not Yeager anymore. McNeilis, there we go. Stephanie isn't here. We went to Stephanie's wedding. And my daughter, who was two or three at the time, when we left, said, Mommy, I want to get married. <laughs> As we're driving out of the church parking lot. And I was like, great. <laughs> it's all downhill from here. <laughs> of course, to her, getting married means dressing up in a beautiful dress and have everybody look at you and eating lots of cake. <laughs> but as she's progressed along, she's learned a little bit more about marriage, but she still thinks marriage is just incredible. Now, I'm glad that my kids think that marriage sounds really wonderful because I think it's kind of a testimony of the fact that they, they like our marriage. They see that marriage is a great thing. I just went to a bridal shower two weeks ago and took my daughter. You know, she's almost seven years old, so it was a mommy-daughter night out, you know. She was so excited. And when we got there, they had these little sheets of stationery where you can write a, a note of counsel to the, the bride-to-be. So I asked my daughter what she wanted to, to say, what would be her counsel to this, this girl, and I was writing it out. I was her scribe. So she tells me, say... When your husband gets home from work, go to the door and give him nuggles and kisses. Tell him he's the handsomest man in the world and you're so glad you married him. <laughs> 
And, uh, and it's true. These are the things that she hears from us and the things that she sees in our marriage. I have never regretted marrying my husband. I tell you the truth. I've been married for over nine years now, and there has not been one moment that I've gone, I wish I had never done it. But that is not the case for most people I know. Almost everybody I know, they wish they hadn't gotten married. For them, unfortunately, the knight in shining armor is a knight in tarnished tinfoil. And they find out too late. It wasn't what they thought it was going to be. They're disappointed. They're upset, even angry. And it's, it's very sad. But you know, it reminds me of, you know, when my sister and I were little, there's my beautiful sister right back there in the back. Everybody see my beautiful sister back there? That's my sister, Valerie. Anyway, when Valerie and I were little, we used to make tinfoil jewelry. When nobody was looking, of course, because this was, you know, this was forbidden in our house. So we'd roll tinfoil into these long things and make a ring and then look around and put it on. Ooh, we felt, we felt so decorated with a tinfoil ring on or a tinfoil necklace. It was so beautiful. But the reason it looked so beautiful to us was because our eyes were untrained. We didn't understand what true beauty was. We didn't understand what a diamond really would look like. So we thought tinfoil is gorgeous. Look at how sparkly it is. People looking at marriage from the outside often look at it that way. They think, wow, that looks so beautiful. You know, and I remember the feeling when I was single and I'd be, you know, at church and then I see somebody walking in front of me and he puts his hand in the small of his wife's back, kind of guiding her through the crowd. And I'm like, oh. I want that. I want somebody to love me. But there wasn't anybody. There's nobody there. And to me, the knight in shining armor just wasn't showing up. And every time he showed up and seemed like, wow, this guy could be it, he ended up being a knight in tarnished tinfoil. But fortunately for me, I didn't marry those knights in tarnished tinfoil. Too many people find out after the wedding that he's a knight in tarnished tinfoil. But even though we see all around us the terrible disappointment that marriage brings, you know, if 50% of marriages end in divorce, you know a lot of the ones that stay together, they're staying together because they have to, because they feel obligated, because they have kids, because they can't afford to split up, because they, you know, whatever. The rules, the lists go on and on of reasons why people stay together. But most of those people would not like to be married. If they had the choice, they would go back, get rid of those wedding pictures, and, you know, it's just so sad. If you think most of the people walking past you in the grocery store that are married are wishing that they weren't. But nonetheless, our culture remains enamored with marriage. First comes love, then comes marriage, right? We are consumed with marriage, more and more so. Um, in fact, my friend, my friend was just telling me the other day about this... Uh, reality TV show. We don't have TV, so I don't know what's on, but she said there's this say yes to the dress thing. Have any of you guys ever seen that? Say yes to the dress, and people spend insane amounts of money to fly from some other country to New York City or wherever and go to this boutique and pick out the perfect dress at whatever cost it may be because that's so important to them. The average wedding in America nowadays costs over $19,000. $19,581. That's the average. Now, there are a lot, a lot of people going to the Justice of the Peace and eloping. So who else is paying that? I don't know. And you'd think in Hollywood they would eventually get tired of having these weddings and getting divorced three years later. But no, 
marriage will always solve it because somehow we've cotton into our minds that we will, we will find happiness if we can just marry the right person. And the answer, the reason why, really lies more deep in us than we realize, I believe, because we try to find solutions on a horizontal level. As Solomon said, everything under the sun, right? And we try to find those solutions under the sun, but the reality is the only place we can find the solutions to what our hearts really need are vertical, by looking up to God. God has created us with a longing for things that only he can satisfy. When we don't get them from him, we crave them from someone else. We're going to be talking about that tomorrow in the seminar about slimy cisterns, crystal fountains and slimy cisterns. Because when we don't allow God to satisfy our hearts, we go to something else. Now, the two great longings of the human heart have a lot of different names, but you could call it love and respect. You could call it security and significance. We want somebody to love us, and we want to know that we are valuable. And so we go to marriage as the natural place that we think we'll get it. Finally. I remember when I was single, and I would lie down at night, you know, and I've got all these things going through my mind, this turmoil. I want to talk to somebody, but there's nobody here. I'm alone. That's when I would long for somebody to be married to. And I would just think, wow, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could be married? Somebody to love me. Someone to value me. So I could be secure. Why do people want to get married? These are the things that I hear a lot, you know, that people want from their marriage. Someone who totally understands and loves me for who I am. How many of you would like to have that? Is that what you want in your marriage someday? What about a best friend and soulmate for life? Is that what you want? What about someone I can be completely real with? You want never to have to be lonely again. Someone to laugh with and to cry with. Someone who admires me and chooses me above everybody else in the world. These are the things that we long for, and they're not evil in and of themselves. My husband is my best friend and my soulmate, and I can be completely real with him, and that's wonderful. But you see, these are things that should describe our relationship with God. He is our best friend and soulmate. You will never find a person who will totally understand you and love you completely for who you are. There is no person out there because no human being can totally understand you. But there's someone who can totally understand you. He made you in his image. He loves you with an everlasting love. The promises of the Bible are the foundation that God wants us to build our hearts on, to build our lives on. We want to get married usually for idolatrous reasons. We want someone or something to satisfy the longings that only God can satisfy. Now, I, uh, I remember a conversation I had with a girl not long ago. She called me up Friday night and she said, can I come over and talk, Miss Parker? So I said, sure. She had to walk over to my house. That gave me time to make tea. And when she got there, we sat down, snuggled into the couch and talked. And she said, I just wanted to ask you to pray for me to get a boyfriend. I just really want a boyfriend. I was glad she was honest. So we started talking about this, you know, about the fact that nobody is ever going to fully satisfy her. That longing for a boyfriend is really a sign that she's not ready for a boyfriend because if one comes into her life, she's going to snatch him like a magnet. She's not going to be able to break free. This is a recipe for what the world calls codependent relationships, but what God calls idolatry. She's never going to be able to break free if she needs him and she's wrapping her whole life around him. So at the end of our talk, 
20 minutes or so later, you know, I'm explaining to her all about how God wants to satisfy her and how she can have a devotional life and pray. And, you know, has she read Steps to Christ? She says, well, that's nice, but, but what I really want is a boyfriend. Would you still be willing to pray for me to get a boyfriend anyway? I said, well... No, actually, I wouldn't, <laughs> because a boyfriend is the worst thing that you could get right now. And sure enough, she had a boyfriend within a few weeks. And within a few more weeks, she had a complicated relationship on her hands. And within a couple of months, she was putting on Facebook, boy, I'm so glad I got rid of that jerk. It's funny how it goes on this massive swing from, I'm the happiest person in the world. Oh, it's so wonderful, to uh, a few months later. Phew, I can't believe I ever dated that jerk. But then, of course, they don't learn, do they? We're, we're notorious for not learning. We transfer from one idol to another idol to another idol. And sometimes we go from one guy to another guy or to another guy, or sometimes we transfer to different idols. Maybe we're escaping into fantasy, or movies, or music, or food, the food addictions. With this many people in this room, I know there have to be some people who are struggling with food addictions, maybe bulimia or anorexia or just eating too many sweets. I don't know what it is you're struggling with. But the solution is always the same thing, whether you're in idolatrous relationships or idolatrous um, situations with other things. The solution is always making Christ the center of your life. And we're going to talk about how to do that, what that really means. You know, it's... It's so sad because this is why I wanted to present this topic because I see everybody has this universal fascination with if only I could have, then I would be happy. And marriage seems to be the perfect thing to look at that. So people who are single are saying, oh, I just really want to get married. Do you think that it would work out with him? You know, they come to me and say, you know, I just really want this. I know he's not totally everything I wanted, and I know we have kind of made some mistakes, but do you think we can still make it work? I'm willing to fight for this relationship because I love this person. But then, after that person comes the married person, and the married person is saying, do I really have to fight for this relationship? Because I don't want to be in it anymore. It's been three years. It's killing me. I can't stand it. He's mean to the kids. I'm so unsatisfied. The same person who I would have talked to three years before trying to talk them out of it? No, they won't hear anything of it then because they love this person. Love is faithful. Don't you understand, Mrs. Parker? I know what it's like to love. If you taste love, you're willing to fight for this love. Well, yeah, real love. But that same person will come back to me two weeks later and say, you won't believe what a jerk he was. After all I went through for him, then you know what I found out he was doing? I just had this conversation with somebody like two weeks ago. She finds out he's not just cheating on her with one person, but with two people all at the same time. Wow, you know, he seemed so perfect, but he turned out to be a disaster. But that's okay because somebody else came along and now everything is better. It's an endless cycle. Can you see it? When you're outside marriage, you're looking in. It's like that proverbial revolving door. Those who are on the outside are trying to get in. And those who are on the inside are trying to get out. <laughs> it's ugly. It's ugly, but it's real. You know, Ellen White wrote, um, she said, marriage in a majority of cases is a most galling yoke. Do you know what a galling yoke is? 
a prison. This person is miserable. In a majority of cases, marriage does not satisfy the person's soul because two people are trying to get the other person to satisfy their idolatrous needs. Two leeches and no dog. It's, it's just ugly. <laughs> the real problem is that our goal is happiness, not holiness. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to have a happy marriage, but so often we see marriage as like a goal. It's like the finish line in life. Come on, you, you must know what I'm talking about, because I know I felt this before I got married. It's like, wow, you know, someday, maybe, you know, I've, I've, gone, I've gotten past the milestones. Graduated from high school, graduated from college, got a job, was doing things I wanted to do, had rich, fulfilling friendships, but someday, someday I'll cross the finish line. Someday I'll get married, and then I will have arrived. The pinnacle of happiness. And every morning, thence forward forever, when I wake up in the morning, I have a husband. How beautiful, how wonderful. But I finally realized after getting married that marriage is a lot like graduation, the wedding and the graduation. You know, you get married, and the next day you wake up, and you still have greasy hair and bad breath, and guess what? So does he, and now you get to see it. <laughs> and at the beginning, it's so sweet, you know. My husband used to drop his dirty socks on the floor when he came home from work, and I'd scurry over and pick him up. I get to be a wife. Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> I'd throw him in the clothes hamper. And six months later, it was not that way anymore. <laughs> it just didn't work that way. Now, Candace, I know it's still there for you, right? <laughs> Candace, tomorrow we'll be married for two weeks. Yes, it's so beautiful. And she should be up here telling you the glorious story of the journey that God has led her through. It has been just the most beautiful thing to behold. I have enjoyed the process of watching it immensely. But thankfully, these stories I'm telling about disasters are not about Candace, <laughs> just so you know. Um, what, I've, what I realized along the way as I got married that, is that life is a journey and marriage is a journey. I've been married now, like I told you, for over nine years. It's still changing me in so many ways, changing me, hopefully, into the image of God. Because that is the goal of marriage. If your goal in marriage is happiness, you will never be happy. And your marriage will never be happy. And more than that, it will never confront you for your idolatry in your heart. And then you will not only miss out on having a happy marriage on earth, but you'll miss out on eternity. The purpose of marriage is to help us to be changed into the image of God. A spouse is amazing at this wonderful gift of being able to confront you about the ways you are not like Jesus. I had a, a highly entertaining conversation this morning with someone who was not married. <laughs> and I knew he was not married before he told me because he, he made this remark about how when he's married, he just thinks it will be so awesome because his wife will be able to confront him about things that you know are wrong in his life. Because I was saying, well, in marriage, it's a little different than when you're not married. He said, yeah, I know, because when you're married, you know, my wife will be able to give me a hug and maybe a little kiss, and then she'll tell me, you know, honey, there was something you could have done a little differently there, and it'll be so easy to take because it's from my wife. <laughs> this, this was followed shortly by, why are you laughing so hard? <laughs> I already knew he was not married. He did not have to tell me that. Because when you are married, you find out that it's not like that. 
how many of you have brothers and sisters? Do you like it when your brother or your sister tells you that there is something wrong with you? It is not better when your spouse tells you. It is only worse, just in case you're wondering. They may be more gracious about it than your siblings are, but the knife goes deeper because my husband is my other half. He is my soul. He is, he is the one who is the other half of me. I am naked and not ashamed with him. So when he has to say there's something wrong with you, he knows me deeper. With my, my sisters, I could say, yeah, but she doesn't understand that I am, you know, I've changed a lot in the year that we haven't been around each other or whatever. But my husband, he knows. My husband confronted me the other day and he said, Nicole, you know, I was really frustrated because there were all these things that needed to be done this morning, and instead of doing those, you just sat down on the computer and you were on Facebook for a while. And I realized you were probably escaping because you were overwhelmed by all the stuff that needed to be done. I didn't want to hear that from him. He was right, though. He knew me. He knows me. And when he says, Nicole, there's something going on. I think you've got a sin issue with pride. I can't go. You don't understand me. i got to go. Let me just pray because I'm not quite ready to talk about it yet, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Marriage is not the finish line of life. It is one step in the journey. And you wake up the next day with different responsibilities, just like a graduation. Things are different afterward, but not necessarily better. Now, for me, marriage has made life better. I I am happy. I'm so happy I got married. But I was not happier, hugely happier after I got married than before I got married. In fact, statistics show that that's not the way it typically works. I read a survey on CNN.com a while back that talked about they they did this survey of people before they got married and after they got married, and they found that people who were pretty much happy before they got married, they'd have a little extra blip of happiness around the wedding, and then they'd settle into being pretty much happy just like they were before. People who were pretty much not happy before they got married would have a little blip of happiness around the wedding, and then they would go back to being pretty much unhappy. It really didn't change. There was just a fraction of a percentage of change in whether they were happy or not. If you are not happy before marriage, don't think for a second that getting married is going to solve all of that. See two leeches and no dog. That's not the way you want to start a marriage. I've seen so many of them that start that way. So to many of us, we feel like, you know, the worst thing that can happen in your life is you die without ever getting married, right? On her tombstone, it says, and well, she never married. You know, isn't that an awful thought? I remember when I was 18 praying, oh, God, I know I shouldn't pray this, but please don't come before I get married. I really want to get married. I remember reading statistics that people who get married for the first time between the ages of 28 and 30 have statistically the best chance of their marriage working, and I was like, Oh, Lord, don't make me wait until I'm 28. (laughs) He didn't. I was 27. (laughs) But, you know, I'm so glad that I didn't get married any sooner than that. Don't get me wrong. I love marriage. I have never regretted it. It is wonderful. But the, the things that I was able to do before I got married, all these rich friendships I cultivated, the kinds of ministry I was able to be involved in, the traveling, the mission trips, the great things that God was able to do with me, and the ways he changed me before I got married, I wouldn't trade those years for anything. My husband and I laugh sometimes about the fact that, you know, if we had met each other two years before, we would have both run the other way. 
It's really true. God had this changing work to do in us. And when it was the right time, my husband flew from Africa to America, having no idea I existed. I had no idea he existed. The Lord introduced us to each other. And a year and two days after we met, we were married. That's not something I would recommend to anybody. You know, just get married right away as soon as you can. But God led us together. And it has just been the most beautiful journey I could describe to you. So I couldn't have found my husband. God found him for me. I don't mean by that that you should wait until God gives you a miraculous sign to find your spouse, because I don't think that's the way that the scriptures or the spirit of prophecy recommend finding a spouse by miracle. But I do believe that God guides people who are willing to surrender to him. And in my life, what I said is, Lord, you know, I came to the point where I realized there are probably maybe five guys out there in the world that I could marry and have a rich, wonderful, fulfilling ministry with. But I thought, you know, Lord, you know which one of those would be the best one for me. You know which one of those there will be the most people in heaven if I married that one. So, Lord, I know you haven't said you've got to let me pick this person. And I know God can bless marriages even when he didn't lead people together. When two people who have gotten married for all the wrong reasons surrender their lives completely to God, he can still work in that marriage for his glory, although it may never be what he wanted it to be. But I felt, God, I want you to choose. You bring him to me. Don't leave it up to me. I don't want to just pick one of those five and be blessed. I want to be most blessed. And I believe God led me to that man. And I know that there are those of you in this room who think immediately when you hear that, wow, I wonder. Could that happen to me? It can, but it's not your goal in life. You know, last night I heard a, when they were introducing Candace and Michael to a song and saying, yes, they met at SWYC. I thought, aha, when I was single, if I had been sitting here single, I would have thought, maybe. You just never know where he is, right? He could be right here in this audience for the first time. When my husband came past, I was not interested. When he first said hi to me, I said hi and kept walking as fast as I could, thinking, great, it's probably some hick from Texas that wants a wife and kids. <laughs> I'm not even exaggerating. Those were my thoughts. <laughs> He's from Africa. <laughs> Go figure. All he said was hi. I didn't even know that he had an English accent. Anyway, the thing is, you can't hope to make this happen for yourself. You need to trust and let go and let God do that mysterious process of changing you into his image. And the first thing that he wants to do is to change you into a person whose goal is holiness, not happiness. If holiness is your goal, sin is your enemy. And you will approach relationships in an entirely different way than if happiness is your goal. I want to talk a little bit now about the cycle of isolation and immersion. I mentioned last night when I was introducing the seminar that I want to talk about fear and need and how those affect our relationships. This is a cycle of fear and need. I want to be safe is the fear side. I need you in order to live is the need side. And most unhealthy relationships cycle back and forth between these two. I need you in order to live, which then leads to suffocating feelings or being terribly hurt when this person does or says something that doesn't satisfy what you wanted them to do. Then you pull away. I need to be safe. You're hurting me too much. I can't bear this anymore. 
Then when you pull away from them, then you have this crying need for somebody to wrap your life around. And you go back. Now I need you in order to live again. The I love me, I love you, I love you not cycle. It's poisonous. It's evil. But you cannot break free from it without Christ. Because Christ is the one who has ordained for us to long to be safe and to need someone. He just doesn't want us to find those things in a person. God has given us this reality of need and fear to drive us to him. You know, the two great problems in America now are anxiety and depression. Where does anxiety come from? Anxiety comes from needing somebody to take care of you. I need to be safe. But you can't trust God, so you've got to trust self. When you trust self, you will never be safe because you even know in yourself, how can I protect myself? You know, you don't know who's hiding around the corner when you walk down the street. You can't stop every bad thing from happening to you. you. What if a drunk driver is coming on the other side of the road and veers over into your lane? You can't protect yourself. You cannot keep yourself safe. And so we as human beings try to protect ourselves. This is the evil cycle of anxiety. I'm going to take care of myself. I don't need anybody. But we can't take care of ourselves. And so we live in fear. Then we try to find somebody to make us feel safe. And then when we can't find somebody who makes us feel safe or we confront the reality that we can't take care of ourselves, then we fall into depression. Depression is that, that horrible feeling like, you know, even God can't love someone like me. Even God can't take care of me. I just wish, fill in the blank, whatever it is, because our goal is happiness. When we get into this cycle, we, we try to protect ourselves from those closest to us because we know they're the ones who can hurt us the most. And then, when we need someone to love us, we go over there and get hurt again. And then we go over here, and then we need them, and we get hurt again, and we come back over here. Then we need them, and we get hurt again. You know, I just drew a diagram this week for a woman who came to me, married, she's been married for several years, married this man that just seemed so together. He was so strong, he was so loving. And God led them together. So now, several years down the road, she called me. She said, I can't stand it. I've got to come over. Please, can I come talk tonight? She came over, burst into tears, said, I need someone to pray with me. I've got to have help. For three hours, we talked. And I drew her a diagram. And I didn't uh, make a diagram of this, but you can imagine it. There, I drew two little dots, a dot on this side and a dot on this side, and said, this is your heart. This is your husband's heart. The two of you long for someone to take care of you. This is your vulnerable innermost core with no shell around it. And you got married hoping that the two would become one. These two innermost tender cores with no walls between would now become meshed into one. This beautiful picture of Christ and the church. But then he did some little thing that hurt you and you started putting up a little bit of a wall. Then you did some little thing that hurt him and he started putting up a wall. And brick by brick, I drew brick walls around those circles. Brick by brick, you've, drawn, you've grown walls around yourselves and trying to protect yourselves from the other person hurting you. You have made it so you cannot be intimate. You cannot be vulnerable with each other because you have to protect yourselves. You're committed to, I want to be safe. And now, they have to take apart those same walls if they want to ever experience true intimacy again. God does not ordain that kind of a poisonous cycle. 
But the problem happens when our goal is happiness. Because when our goal is holiness, what is our enemy? Sin. But when our goal is happiness, our enemy becomes pain. When your goal is happiness, your enemy is pain. And when your enemy is pain, you will build walls to protect yourself. You cannot stop yourself. If I come over to you and I start doing this to you, you're going to, you know, I'm, I'm poking her eyes out. She closes her eyes. She can't help it, right? We cannot stop ourselves from protecting ourselves instinctively. If I'm trying to poke your eyes out, you're going to try to protect yourself. You're going to pull away. This is, this is a human response, and it's only through the power of Christ that we can be lifted higher than that so that we will be committed to ministry instead of to self-protection. You see, both of these are basically self-focused, aren't they? I want to be safe. It's all about me. I need you in order to live. It's all about me. And relationships get into this selfishness cycle. Now, when you get married, as a person who loves God and is seeking to let him fulfill his will in your life, <clears throat> you may think, okay, I can escape from that cycle. But it's only by moment-by-moment moment dependence on God. Because when you get married, suddenly you confront your selfishness on a deeper level than you ever imagined. Now you need to be safe so much more because this person is right there in the space of your heart of hearts. They can hurt you like nobody else ever did. When we get caught in these cycles, we crave closeness and intimacy, but we prevent it by our own response. The cycle of addiction is the same thing. When I don't base my security and significance in Christ, I demand security and significance from someone else. When that person fails me, I feel, and wrongly, but I feel that no one loves me this way. No one will give me the love that I long for. And we're even pushed farther from Christ. That's our carnal nature. If this person won't love me, how can I go to God? Because we've been idolatrous already, I don't base my security and significance in Christ. When I don't do that, then I start getting thirsty. And the thirstier I get, the more I look for this in somebody else, something close by me. When I can't find somebody, I become desperate. Then I escape into something. And whatever it is you escape into will become an addiction. It can be movies, it can be music, it can be novels, it can be fantasy, it can be masturbation. It can be promiscuity. It can be becoming popular, getting good grades. It, it doesn't matter. Shopping. Shopping is another big one. People will escape into something that makes me feel good about myself because they're desperate. But then when you've gone shopping, you've spent all this money, you come back and you try the clothes on, and a week later you want to return them all because they're not making you feel good anymore, you feel worse. And now you're farther from God because you depended on those things instead of God. This is the cycle of the broken cistern. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. The cycle of turning away from Christ and turning to other things. And the farther we get into the other things, the farther we feel from Christ. I remember a couple I talked to not long ago. They tried so hard to make things work. And they kept on reaching out to each other in love and in need. And the two were so tangled in their minds, they didn't know themselves where they were. And finally, I said, you know what? You guys are like two drowning people. You're, have you ever worked with life-saving? Has anybody ever been a lifeguard here? My sister and me. <laughs> so when, we, when I was taking lifeguarding class, they taught us never swim to a drowning person 
unless it's the absolute last resort. You extend a paddle to them, you extend a branch to them, you throw a life ring to them, you, you send anything you can except yourself. Because a drowning person is frantic. They will grab you and push you under, and you will die with them. No one will be saved, you'll both die. Then they taught us, if you do, if there's nothing else you can do and you have to try to save this drowning person, you may want to even let them go unconscious and then you can drag them out without them killing you. But if you have to race in there and save them, then you dive under the water. When you're several feet from them where they still can't reach you, you dive under the water, you swim behind them, you turn them around and grab them over their shoulders so that their head is away from you, their face is away from you, they can't grab you. This is the job of a of a minister, anybody who is ministering to someone else. You've got to try to help them without them grabbing onto you because you will be the idol if you're not careful. They will go, wow, somebody who loves me. I don't need Christ now. I have Nicole. And no one can be saved by me holding the hand of Christ on one hand and me holding the hand of the person on the other hand and dragging them to heaven that way. Each of us must have a personal relationship with Christ. So this couple was trying to minister to each other, but they just couldn't because they were two drowning people. And when they would reach for the other person, they pushed them down. Then back and forth they would go, drowning each other, hurting each other. And I said, you know, it's kind of like a rotting log. You're hanging on to this rotting log of a relationship. It's not actually that you love this other person, it's that you need this other person instead of Christ. You're hanging on to this rotting log and you've got to let go of the rotting log and swim away. As you swim away from the rotting log, you will become desperate. When you realize it's out of reach and I could drown here, you'll become desperate. But you've got to swim away towards something better. And the something better is a life ring that has been thrown down from the cruise ship that's going past. Jesus sends us a life ring. He's always there. He reaches out to you in whatever situation you're in, whatever idol that you've been clinging to. As you let go of that and you swim away from it, you swim toward that life ring and you get pulled into the cruise ship of the security in Christ that you could never imagine when you're hanging onto the rotting log. Who wants a rotting log? But if you're drowning, you'll never let go of the rotting log because it is your security. How can I go to that? Who knows if I can make it to the life ring? I've got this, this rotting log right here, and it feels great. You know, we've been together a long time. A relationship like that will never work because it's founded on idolatry. It's a crumbling foundation. It can never work because God and his love has to crumble our idols in order to bring our hearts back to himself. That seems cruel, but it's the most gracious thing he can do for us. This book, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, awesome book says, we live with this tension between self-protective isolation and the dream for meaningful relationships. We are tempted to make a relationship either less or more than what it was intended to be. This is why most people get married. It's not because marriage is sinful. It's because God has a narrow way that leads to life. And the narrow way has two sides that we can fall off. The narrow way that leads to life is focused on Christ, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I love that message this morning, focusing on Jesus, seeing his face. When we're focused on Christ, everything else comes into focus around us. But when we're not focused on Christ, we're automatically focused on what? Self. We will always be focused on self. And a self-focused life is either self-protective or 
it is, you know, it's self-protective isolation or we're seeking a meaningful relationship but overemphasizing it. We need this person instead of loving this person. So we cycle back and forth between fear and need. I need somebody to love me. This guy just burned me. I can't believe how he treated me. I'm never going to love again. I'm never going to let any guy into my life again. Fear. But then we cycle back into need. I can't live like this. I need somebody to love me. And then someone comes along and we melt into his big brown eyes and everything is going to be wonderful until it falls apart again because it's idolatrous. I knew a woman who carried the picture of her ex-fiance in her wallet for 40 years. 40 years of cheating herself out of a happy, rich marriage because she gave up on her husband. If only I'd married the right guy, then I could have been happy. 40 years. It doesn't have to be that way. When we live for God, we realize that He does not ordain relationships that are all about self. Most people who get married, they're getting married because I'll be happier if I get married, right? And I am happier now that I got married, but if my goal was to be happier, I wouldn't be happier. It would become a cycle of if you would just do this, then I could be happy. If you just stop doing this, then I could be happy. Isolationists, continuing in relationships a mess worth making, isolationists conclude that relationships are too difficult. They're not necessary and the effort is not worth it. I don't need relationships to be me. Have you ever heard somebody say this kind of thing? Come on, haven't you had friends who after a breakup say this kind of thing? Be honest. Haven't you thought it yourself at least? I know I did. On the other hand, immersionists are convinced that relationships are everything. Without relationships, I am nobody. These are both idolatrous because they're both self-centered, right? God's plan for marriage is not like that. And God's plan for marriage is beautiful. He said at the beginning, it's not good for man to be alone, right? I will make a helpmeet for him. <coughs> Excuse me. I had the privilege of doing premarital counseling for this beautiful, wonderful couple in the picture. And it was just glorious to see them understanding more and more of what God's plan for marriage was for them. And it is so beautiful. Think about it. God's purpose for marriage is the same as his purpose for your life. He wants to change you into his image. Think about this. This is the gospel. The glorious gospel is a God who rules the entire universe. You go out there and walk and look at that beautiful big blue sky out there. He rules all of that. You know, when we were... When I was flying out here on the way um, a couple of days ago, I realized, you know, I was looking out the, the window of the airplane. Here I am, this little teeny person in a huge airplane full of people. And I look out the window and there's this massive expanse of sky. Then I look down at the ground and it looks flat. And I know this is a round planet. This planet is huge and it's just a speck. Here I am, a speck inside of a jet plane, this big plane then this plane is just a speck flying around this huge Earth. And this Earth is just a speck in this solar system. And this solar system is just a speck in this galaxy. And this galaxy is just a speck in this universe. And he rules over it all. The God that rules that massive universe out there cares about you. He looks down and says, I would die for her. That kind of God loves you. Why do you want to base your sense of identity 
on another piddly little ball of clay like you. <laughs> and not only that, this gospel is about this God, this mighty, massive God up there who says, I know you're a mess. You know, we, we like to comfort ourselves. You know, you're a good person down inside. Psychology helps us so much in this area. <laughs> you're really good at heart. Just worship the God that, you know, as you understand him. Try to, try to you know, think about God as love, and he, he accepts you just the way you are. Yes, he does. But he loves you too much to just leave you that way. So here is this God of the universe who looks down and sees you, this massively messed up little ball of clay. He made you in his image. You rebelled. And he says, I will die for you. How can we comprehend that? You understand what the gospel is? Do you see what I'm talking about here? God forms Adam out of the dust of the ground. He breathes into them, him the breath of life. And at that moment, Adam becomes a living soul. And Adam slaps his creator in the face and says, I don't need you. I actually would like to take care of myself because the devil said, you shall be as gods. And I like that idea. I like not needing you. I want to be a god myself. And God says, I will die for you. What kind of God is this? What kind of love is this? And then when Adam falls flat on his face and he's miserable and he's ashamed, this woman that seemed to be the most beautiful thing in the whole world, he was willing to give up God for a relationship with Eve. But now, when God comes to the garden just a few hours later, Adam, you know, is like, oh, wow. <laughs> it's me or her, isn't it? <laughs> She's the one. It's her fault. You know, what does he think that God is going to do? If you sin, you're going to die. Adam just decided, I would rather have you. I would rather die with you, Eve, than have God and have life. So he chooses selfishly. He chooses sinfully. And now a few hours later, when God comes and says, where are you? Adam's like, uh-oh, he's going to blast me. What do I hide? Hey, there you go. Kill this one, not me. He wants to blame Eve. What kind of love is that? This guy that was so in love with Eve, once selfishness comes into the picture, that is always what will happen in your relationship. You will be willing to sacrifice the other person as long as you can save yourself. How evil. But God takes this wretched, miserable, selfish guy and says, Adam, are you willing to let me change you into my image anyway? And Adam finally is brokenhearted enough to say yes. And God takes this warped, twisted, selfish person and says, all right, let's start the process now. I'm going to change you into my image again. And that's what he does with every one of us. You may have made a mess in your life. You may have things you're not proud of. You don't want to think about the mess that you've made in some areas of your life. But that is not the reality that God lives in. We look at ourselves and think, God couldn't do anything with somebody like me. But your faith doesn't have to be, and I'm, I'm actually a pretty good person. If your faith is built in that, it's shallow and weak and worthless. You don't have to believe, I'm actually not such a bad person. God could do something with me. Your faith has to be built on, wow, the God of the universe is so powerful that he can take a wretched, miserable, sinful person like me and restore his image in me. This is the goal of the gospel. Wasn't that God's goal before Adam and Eve fell? He said, I am going to, here I've created you perfect beings, but I'm going to 
keep on changing you more and more into my image every day. All day, every day, you're going to learn more about love as you behold me in nature and in communion with me. Every day at the close of the day, you're going to be more like me than you were before. You'll still have infinite room to grow. Throughout all of eternity, you'll become more and more loving all through your life. But they sinned, and God said, that's okay. I can still deal with this. I am bigger than sin. If you will let me, I will take you and all your mess, and I will still change you into my image. This is the purpose of marriage. This is the purpose of your life, to be changed into the image of God from glory to glory. Every day as you spend time with God, he says, you see this, Nicole? That's an area in your life that needs to go. I know you've been doing the night a right thing, but you've been doing it with an impure motive. You wanted people to look at you. You wanted your husband to think that you were really something. You didn't do something bad, but your motive was bad. Isn't that what the Word of God says? It reveals the thoughts and motives of the heart. This is how the Bible changes us, how the Gospel changes us. You know, marriage was ordained of God to be something that molds us into the image of Christ. So often it molds us into the image of the devil. You know, my daughter was just listening to me talking about counseling somebody a couple of days ago. She said, wow, Mommy. It would be better not to get married, wouldn't it? <laughs> I said, well, chickadee, I'm not sorry I married daddy. <laughs> but that's why you need to be really careful who you marry, my girl. And she said, wow, you're right, mommy. So when you think of God's plan for marriage, it's two people who are vulnerable, naked and not ashamed. When the other person hurts them, they don't build a wall. They cling to Christ and say, heal me. Heal the broken in heart like you've promised you will. So they stay vulnerable. They stay able to be real with each other. They, they preserve that intimacy even when it hurts, even when this person hurts them more than any other person in the world has ever hurt them. Then they start becoming like Christ in the church, loving each other deeply. That's what marriage is supposed to be, two people who don't build a wall even when the other person hurts them, two people who say, I am committed to forever being like you, one with you, soulmates, we're going to be one flesh, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. We're going to go on this journey together. If one of us falls, the other one will lift them up. We're going to keep each other accountable before God. That's what it's supposed to be like in marriage. It's magical. It's beautiful. It's mysterious. It's Christ and the church, and we can't fully understand it, but we can appreciate it. Well, we're out of time for right now. So I'm going to give you, let's see, five minutes break. What do you think? And then we can come back and talk. All right.